Welcome to a bonus episode of United Ireland. Now, this week, permission was granted by Dublin City Council to change 1,600 beds in luxury student accommodation buildings in the city into accommodation for tourists or short-term worker apartments, uh, whatever that means. Uh, It's a long-predicted pivot, despite the fact that that word is banned from the podcast, uh, for these buildings which are much maligned considering the housing crisis uh, Ireland, particularly Dublin, is in. Rebecca Moynihan, the Labour senator, who as a councillor did an incredible amount of work in highlighting the abundance of purpose-built student accommodation, PBSA, and co-living development plans uh, in Dublin City, in particular Dublin 8. And she's going to join us to discuss this development, no pun intended. Hello, Rebecca. How's it going? How are you? We're really good. And... Also frustrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, understandably. Yeah, I'm really frustrated and disappointed with that decision as well. Um, what I, can you tell us about what has just happened, actually? So, what has happened is the, there's four providers, um, four, four, five of them, four on the north, north side, one on the south side um, in Mill Street. Um, and then there's two on Dominic Street, one on North Circular Road. Um, that have basically applied for planning permission for this academic year from October onwards to be able to uh, have a a different use for the purpose-built student accommodation. And it's the same operator of them. And in the application, they basically said that uh, the international student market has collapsed um, that they aren't going to be able to fill it up, and but the, the domestic tourist market hasn't collapsed. Now, they put in these applications right after Level 3 had been introduced where you're not able to travel outside counties. Um, so I had always thought that that argument was a bit ridiculous. And so for the very, very short term, up until... Um, next year up until May that they be able to have uh, visitors or short-term worker accommodation that was in this and my concern with purpose-built student accommodation the sheer proliferation of it like there's always you know the housing market is very diverse and people's needs are very diverse in it particularly if you're in a city what you will want in your 20s is often very different from what you will want in your 30s and um, what you will want if you're coming to live here for a year is very different that if you're somebody who you know wants to live long term in Dublin but the problem with, with, with what the sheer number of purpose-built student accommodation units being put into Dublin 8, Dublin 7 and Dublin 1. Um, so no units that were like adjacent to very large third level institutions. I had always thought that the game wasn't for purpose-built student accommodation, that in a couple of years time that they were going to turn around being like, there's still a housing crisis, but, you know, we can't fill up. So why, why are we having these buildings sitting here empty and, you know, allow us to use it for somebody else? And you would essentially be co-living by the back door. So you'd be introducing, you know, shared accommodation type units um, to address the housing crisis. And, you know, we have seen in terms of housing, hotels supplanting, um, you know, apartment living or housing living or social housing that people have been put in hotels. So that was always my concern about it, just the sheer amount. And my argument is that the planning system, it's not responsible for underpinning a business model. And that's what's happening now with these purpose-built student accommodations. It's not just their business model. It's actually their marketing model. So what should happen in, you know, people who think that the market should look after housing is that, they, you know, there's, there's an oversupply and it's not meeting demand. And so they should drop their prices, not pivot to another user. And the planning system allow them to do that. The, the one in Mill Street, 
really concerned me because the first thing in, in the application that was a bit, and I was one of the few people when, when that application came in um, to do an objection because this was at the really early stages of purpose of student accommodation, um, had made a big deal about having this public open space. And, and one of the conditions of the development was that during daylight hours that there was to be a public open space and access for, you know, people in the local community and it was going to, you know, enhance the street and the road. And that developer never opened that public open space, even though it was a condition of planning. He then applied to change it. And even though it was a condition of planning, the local authority granted him planning to close off that public open space. And I made that argument in the letter that I sent in this was that every single time, you know, planning application goes in, but the goalposts are being constantly, constantly moved. Um, and like in Dublin, for example, there's 4,000 um, between student accommodation units um, and apart hotel units and hotels. Um, that have been built in the last couple of years, we're beginning to see more housing coming on stream, more long-term housing coming on stream. Um, but it was a very barren wasteland for a very, very long time um, when these things were shooting up. Rebecca, what's the difference between student accommodation and a standard apartment? Like, obviously, there's a conversation happening that there's, um, there is a call for this different types of accommodation to make up a city, and that makes sense. But what is the main difference between student accommodation and a standard apartment? Uh, standards, um, balconies, um, windows, storage space, dual aspect, um, and park and, and, and the, the big ones in, in terms of affordability is parking, um, putting in underground parking puts an awful lot of money on the unit price of, of, of units because you have to drill down and you have to underpin it more. So, so parking is expensive, the parking standards for apartments. Um, and the other one is you don't have the part five requirement. So if you're doing an application like the, there's applications in at the moment on um, on the Player Will site or the Bailey Gibson site and the developer there are doing built rent, but they still have to do the 10% social and affordable. Now, I have questions about how well that's working, um, but they at least have to do, they have to account for it. In a student accommodation provider, you don't have to account for it at all. So all of those things add up um, to making it easier to build um, and in theory, making it cheaper. Um, but it's it's just that they're, 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 they're smaller units. Um, I also have questions just about the, the sheer amount of demand for, for, for purpose-built student accommodation. Like if we don't have a planning system, we have a permission system. And there needs to be at some stage the local authority saying, we actually have so many of these units coming on stream in comparison to apartments. We need to incentivize through our planning system people building apartments. And developers need to know that they they shouldn't be allowed to get away with this moving all the time. And actually, the planning authority will look more favorably on the building of apartments than they will do the building of, of, of these, you know, what, what are yeah, very, very short term, have a place in a limited market, but they don't, the sheer number and volume of them that there is at the moment, I'm not sure the demand is there. Because they are such an, a, a niche offering in a way, like nobody is saying that there shouldn't be, you know, student res, student dorms, student accommodation, um, either on campus or close to campus of places, because it's obvious that, you know, certain people need that. But the disproportionate number of them being built versus flats and apartments and uh, 
houses being built in Dublin City is is really extraordinary. But the one thing that really kind of boils my blood and the collective blood, I would say, uh, reading that piece in in the Irish Times on a Tuesday with regards to this permission being granted, is that everybody saw this coming or like so many people saw this coming. You saw it coming. Myself and Andrew have been talking about it. You know, the likes of Orla Hegarty, like loads and loads of people are saying, we know where this is going. Why doesn't the planning system or the permission system, whatever you want to call it, have foresight to say, okay, well, you're building yay many thousands or beds or whatever you want to call in the city centre. We know, considering what has gone on in cities like London and Manchester and so on, what happens when those can't be filled, either in the summer, there's loads of tourists wandering in and out, or eventually we end up in this warped situation where people who need housing are living in, you know, this kind of insta-tenement type model and because we can't get uh, students who have that level of cash to drop on a you know on a bed sit basically for like 1200 euros a month why is there no process within the council or the planning system to say you're not allowed to kind of change this or move the goalposts down the line because it's it's so annoying. Like these things are fucking built now. Do you know what I mean? And right. like we're going to be looking at them for the next whatever 20, 30, 40 years until they're demolished and turned into something else. I I honestly don't know. And like I particularly thought with the, with these ones, I thought permission would be refused. Um, I, I like I thought permission would be refused because there's absolutely no evidence that the domestic tourist market was growing, and this was submitted right after level three. Um, and like I had made the argument in the letter, like government had increased its student accommodation or student um, numbers by 2000 this year because of everything that had gone on with the, the, the leaving cert. So, you know, drop like drop the drop the prices. And this was a planning decision that not only underpinned a business model, it actually underpins a marketing business model that it's not student accommodation or or smaller accommodation where students can live because you're only going to be there for, you know, nine months or you're not going to need a huge amount of, you know, additional storage space or you're not going to be potentially moving in with somebody. Like, for th- there's reasons why, you know, student accommodation is what it is. Um, but what this is, is it's luxury student accommodation. Um, and it's so, so, so inexpensive. Like, the sheer amount that it charges per week. And there's only so many people who can afford that. Like you look at the income statistics and um, you look at the, you know, social, social breakdown of the city, even look at the social breakdown of students who are coming up. Like it's a very, very expensive form. So just the sheer numbers and volumes of it. And, and that's my concern with other, other types of accommodation as well, where I can sometimes see the logic for a limited form of them. I know in the Irish system, that what happens is it only becomes then, you know, like pre-crash, we were only building things like nursing homes. Uh, now it's student accommodation. With the new thing is is co-living, that is loads of it is coming on stream. There's actually been no co-living that's built. But I've noticed in the last couple of months, um, there was one I had one down in the Fumbly and um, there's another one that's just um, been applied for on Cork Street. And again, it's the same thing. It's the same areas, Dublin 7, Dublin 1, Dublin 8. They're the ones that are getting hit by this an awful lot. Now, co-living have 
have gone out more to the suburbs. But yeah, it's it's a, it's extremely frustrating because you're watching a train crash like what happened in the last crash before the last crash saying well, why is nobody shouting stop? And why is, you know, nobody doing this? You know, why is nobody doing this? And when you see so little social housing being built, like um, I understand that COVID has affected the numbers, but the target in rebuilding Ireland for building direct build social housing this year, we have just 10, 10% of those social housing units that have been built. So like there's, there's a great frustration knowing that there's a housing crisis understanding that we have to build in these empty sites but also having a look at what's being built and it being wrong and and I you know when I look at planning applications and go in I try and always look at it from the perspective of if I was to live there what would I find problematic about this to kind of avoid the natural nimbyism that can take over your head when you're looking at planning applications um, and I think you need to be looking at planning applications as what's this going to be like in 100 years as opposed to like th- these aren't even going to last 20 years from what I can see. Mm. Like they barely lasted five years now. Like there seems to be there's obviously a narrative as well you're saying about looking at people who live there what will they feel but there is seems to be this sense that nobody actually wants to live in them that uh, people who are building them wouldn't live in them themselves politicians wouldn't live in them uh, I did a very scientific poll on my Twitter and nobody wanted to live in them so why are the are they be continuing to be like obviously it's it seems to be profit and they're they're could be like a demand for uh, co-living in some sense. But as you say, it's just going on and on. And it has such an effect on then the local communities involved. And we were talking about like the single persons being uh, nullified from adding to a community. But what effect are these kind of uses having on communities? No, absolutely. And I think particularly when it comes to co-living, like I think that's so limited and it's so niche, like, I can't, you can understand if someone's coming to live for a year, they might think of going um, in there, but that those numbers are so limited from what we've seen in terms of planning applications. I don't think that they um, match up. And I did a Facebook live on co-living and um, I, my the guy who's taken over from me on the council, councillor, Darren Moriarty, it was on his page. And the two of us were chatting and then we had two people like suddenly come in and flood the comment box. Some random woman from Cork who just happened to come in at the exact time that we were on the live on, you know, a very new councillor's Facebook page to talk about how great co-living was um, and how, you know, it's great for a young professional like her. And then some other guy who um, didn't even hide the fact that he was working for a kind of a co-living lobbyist um, agency come on. So uh, like what I what I found about the discussions around this is that like you're having developers tell people what young people you know will want young young professionals will want to live in um and also this idea that it just has to be professionals that need housing really really annoys me um or it's just families that need housing or it's just you know housing there's a different housing need but if we just have one one particular type of housing need being addressed we're in big trouble and it is up to planning authorities local authorities government policy to address that and there isn't enough of a strong-armed approach coming to address that saying no you're not going to get away with building all of these within the one very small area and you have to demonstrate that the demand is there 
you have to demonstrate that the demographics are there and you have to demonstrate how you will stay in it long term. Um, and, you know, that that's not happening. It's it's like when one thing gets applied for, everything gets applied for. And it's a permission system as opposed to a proper planning system. On the young people wanting to live in co-living, how can you actually say that? And this is going to be very skewed toward my personal interest, but you can't have a party. You can't have people out for dinner. You can't like lie on your couch and just watch a movie for the day with a tub of ice cream or whatever in your knickers. Like there's no kind of focus on what young people actually do when they're in college or um, apart from study, obviously very important. But like the, the social aspect is is taken away and it's like, oh, but there's communal areas that you can cook in. But if you want to make a cake, let's say, how do you book the oven? So yeah, absolutely. And like that, that's what I mean, that it's very like, how are you young kids? What are you doing? I'm another young kid too. This is what you want type of communications that actually come from developers in terms of like, this is the thing that all young people want to do. Um, and I think if you actually ask um, people, they say, no, this is not what I want to do. The the, the shared number of spaces, I, it's a really interesting thing as well. In between the first phase, the, the first guidelines published for co-living um, in, I think it was December 2016. And then the guidelines were finally published in March 2017. I, I think they're the, the numbers. But in between that, there was a section put into the guidelines which allowed, um, it, which allowed developers to go beyond the number of units to, to kitchens um, if, they, if they made an argument for it or whatever. And now everybody's making an argument for it, you know. So you're seeing these things where you're having, you know, uh, 16 bedrooms to a kitchen. Uh, and, and that, like, that's not livable in, you know. There's nobody got, like, we all have our dinner at about the same at about the same time we all have our breakfast at about the same time so those shared facilities um like they're 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 not up to standard particularly for the amount of money that you can see that they're going to be charging in order to do this and it's you know there's a whole lot of words. we have a dysfunctional housing system with the financialization of housing and this is the logical conclusion to what we've done uh, that we essentially um, ask you know 16 people to have their own room have shared spaces but we're also going to charge them huge amounts of money for other mad things like like as you said um una insta tenements kind of thing um and yeah it's it's not sustainable long-term development for any city i'm just looking at daft right now right so i put in dublin eight for rent <clears throat> and clearly these places aren't being filled brickworks which has you know a, an orange couch and gym and a poster that says "Don't grow up, it's a trap," oh, um, and uh, what looks like a really crap pool table. Uh, highlight on Thomas Street. Uh, from here on Cork Street, three hundred and seventy-five euro a week for a studio apartment. The photo of which a digital rendering of a woman looking at two stools beside. Uh, kitchen drawers thing it's all like it's just studio apartment bedsit thing what's amazing is that they've had to digitally render the couch transparent so you can see her uh through it um uh new mill and the tannery on mill street um you know the 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 area of uh dublin that is arguably you know the heart of the city and soul of the city the liberties 
has been flooded with this kind of stuff. Um, I used to live on Mill Street, actually, in uh, one of those Liam Carroll, uh, Zoe development uh, apartments on, on Newmarket Square. And what irritates me is that people co-live all the time. It's called sharing a gaff. It's called having an apartment with your mates that has two or three bedrooms in it. And I'm just wondering what needs to happen to cop people. On. I mean, it's so nebulous. Like who is actually, uh, we know that this is developer led um, stuff, but like what needs to happen for this to stop? Because as Orla Hegarty was saying yesterday, when myself and Ronan Lyons were having a bit of a back and forth, you know, she was saying, you know, you can't just develop by spreadsheet. We know that people need housing, but this stuff, you know, is, you know, architecture is like spatial, it's 4D and people have to live with this stuff. What do you think needs to happen to kind of stop this um I like I mean it is a, a kind of 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 architectural and vandalism not to mention the kind of the social cleansing that's happening to communities who grow up in areas yet now can't live in places because they're not whatever the hell a short-term worker is or you know a student I just I just like what needs to happen like what's your solution or or recommendation or maybe it's just I don't know so, so you've actually knocked on um so, so something interesting, and I I think this is something that Ronan Lyons talks a lot about. Um, in terms of you were you were saying that people co live together and they they share gaps, and that is what we do have. So Prime Time did a really good report maybe a couple of years ago on the housing crisis, and they looked at the the number of units and where we were missing units. And um, so what you have is like family accommodation. What you have is a, a load of single people who are living together and co-living and, and, and sharing a gap. But where we have the, the, the real um, the, the real need for housing and it's the growing population is one bedroom uh, units and uh, one bedroom houses. Um, and, and I'm, you know, counting apartments and that because I'm absolutely not against apartments, I think. Um, apartments are great if they're done really, really done well and you see European cities that have you know apartments that were built 100 years ago that people still live and have ha- have as their housing but we have we have a problem with single units and I suppose that's one of my most frustrating thing about co-living and student accommodation is that if you're single and you want to live in apartments and you want to rent long term or you want to buy and and live somewhere like that, they're not being built because you see these smaller units that are being um, built and supplanting it. And so what will eventually happen is you'd be like, oh, maybe I'll just go into this now. But we do need to build one bedroom apartments because it is the growing demographic trend um, that, that people are staying single for longer, are living by themselves. Um, and we don't have the housing need to be able to support them. Um, and then that will free up then, you know, family accommodation and and, and bigger houses and bigger units and bigger apartments um, for, for, for families to do it. So, like, the one thing I would like to see more of is, um, you know, proper, like, kind of long-term sustainable one beds being built and um, that people can live in and put down roots in and, you know, settle in. And so I'm always very wary about that equating one bedrooms with transient 
Um, mm. Because I, 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 I'm really uncomfortable with the language that some people can use about that. Yeah. Um, that they're basically like, oh, you can't, you know, you can't build build a community with loads of one bets. I'm like, you know, single people want to c- contribute to their community too. Um, and and it is the gap. It is the gap that if you have a look at any of the demographic stuff. So I, I think you, you need a balance of the planning by spreadsheet because you have to plan not just for what's now, you have to plan for like future demographics and future changes that are coming. Um, and then you have to plan spatially and architecturally. So like a meeting of the two disciplines is what's needed in that. Gotcha. Um, Ona Breen last week had a bill defeated to ban co-living. Do you think there's anything to be said for that? Uh, yeah, and we supported that bill. Um, but the minister can actually do this under the powers given to him. So he can do it at the stroke of a pen um, because it's guidelines um, that came in and the minister has the ability under his own powers to rescind those guidelines. Um, the guidelines I was talking to and referring to earlier on. So he has the ability to do that. And I was really concerned in, on Sunday to read reports in the Sunday Independent that it seems to be the co-living lobby have um, the co-living lobby have uh, got at them. And they're looking at basically putting down um, things that you would have to have less bedrooms per kitchen space, even though the guidelines were changed between the initial consultation and, and the final ones published uh, to allow developers to kind of take the piss when it comes to that stuff. Um, and he seems to be backing down on it. And I really think unless we're getting a hold on our housing situation, our social housing build, our um, building of, of, of houses, even in the private sector, I don't think that we should have co-living because it's going to be the thing that ends up dominating it. And we'll see it becoming part of um, the housing system itself. So I think until we get our own house in order, we shouldn't be allowing it, um, that to happen at all. Um, it is not the solution to the housing crisis by a far stretch but a lot of developers seem to think it is because it will make them loads of money and I would be very concerned as well um, we have the land development agency um, bill coming to us um, at some stage next year and I'd be very concerned as well that maybe there's a couple of projects that are planned for co-living or type shared accommodation as part of what the land development agency does so I think we would need to be um, have very strong legislation around that that um, we're not allowing those type of developments to happen as on public land. What do you think about um, the Minister for Housing, Darrow Breen? He's he's been quite a low key minister, or that that kind of wouldn't be hard uh, given the rest of their antics. Uh, first hundred and fifty days in government, or whatever it is, um, he did call co living, I think, a bonkers policy before he was in government. Do you think he's up to the task? It feels like a Minister for Housing needs to be quite radical at this point. Um, obviously, Owen Murphy was a disaster, but do you think Dara Breen is, 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 knows the sitch? Like, do you think he gets it? I, I'm, I'm, Dara Breen keeps on talking about home ownership and him being in favour of home ownership and him being wanting to get to a policy situation where you have home ownership. And so things like the, the help to buy scheme, um, to, to my mind, is just a transfer over to developers. You know, if, if you're not massively increasing supply um, and you're giving people, you know, money, and I, the Parliamentary Budget Office did a really good analysis of that, which showed that I think it was over 50% of people already had their deposit that were availing of the help to buy. So it was just allowing people to get into more of it 
bidding war, first time buyers to get into a bigger bidding war. Um, so I think that's a transfer over to developers. And uh, like, if you're in favor of home ownership, what you will be in favor of is building social and public housing. Um, because you will free up, um, houses that are already in the system away from, let's say, um, renting from HAP if you have more social and public housing that's available. I'm really disappointed disappointed in in what was lauded as like the biggest capital investment ever and the biggest housing budget ever in the budget there's a couple of things it only really provided for 593 97 extra houses um on top of the what were in the rebuilding ireland targets for 2021 and we were only meeting as of october 10 percent of this year's targets and there was no attempt made to make up for missing this year's target so i think on on the direct build part of that it was really really disappointing um in terms of the affordable housing what we're looking at is we're looking at about um i think 75% of it going towards this home ownership affordable housing which i think is just going to inflate house prices if we're not building um and then we're only looking at 400 units for what's called affordable rental or cost rental uh, which i do think is we have such a severe affordability crisis um, oh, that, that has developed over the last, you know, 20 years, but certainly, you know, at an accelerated pace over the last seven years um, that I think we need to be looking at more innovative and radical solutions in terms of this state having a bigger intervention in the housing market. And I don't think that he really believes in that. And, and he constantly repeats himself. He believes in home ownership. He believes in home ownership you get to a good situation of home ownership when you build social and affordable housing. Um, and, and and that, um, I think they're missing that piece of the puzzle. There's kind of, is there something to be said? We talk a lot about rebuilding and building more and constantly building where we have, people obviously die off and uh, houses are come available. Um, but why is maybe the problem, and this is just me having a random time, <laughs> maybe the problem that there's such a divide between wealth at the moment that you have a house ho- like hoarding. So, so much housing is being sucked up by multiple purchases by one person or groups or whatever. So that the, the supply is being sucked away. And if we keep building and building, it's just going to be kept being slip, sucked away. Um, you're wrong on that. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I, I, I don't have the numbers. Like, 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 think about it, Andrea. Like, we we have more people who are coming to live in Ireland and have more immigrants coming to live in Ireland, and they need to be housed. Uh, we have more immigrants who are returning to Ireland, and they need to be housed. We have a you know a baby boom from the late seventies where people need to be housed. We have a growing population that needs to be housed. Like every census, we have a growing population. And I remember having this argument with somebody recently, and they were talking about, but like, why should we build more? We had loads of houses in the sixties, and I was like, everybody emigrated in the sixties. And just like like if you look at you, your two kids probably would have gone off to live in like London or New York or or, or wherever. So we have a growing population. So we need to keep a constant stream of housing coming on for that growing population. Um, and what the big problem that we're in now is that we almost didn't build over the course of the crash, which built up into this housing crisis. So. I understand, like, I I hear this repeated quite a bit in that, like, we, you know, we were building too much before the last boom and the crash and it got everybody in trouble. We were building in the wrong places. 
And we were giving people money to buy houses that essentially weren't worth it when nobody had any money then afterwards and fell into negative equity. But actually, like the the that's what I mean about the financial of financialization of housing. That if you just simply look at it as being an investment, it's a social investment. And Dublin is growing, and we simply need more units. And we have quite low density in Dublin in comparison to other cities. We tend to have urban sprawl. There's some really interesting stuff, and that's what I'm talking about. Um, when you're looking at even an economist perspective, um, I watched a really interesting um webinar um maybe about a month or two ago on housing and around around lines and I don't have the figures here um because I've changed over notebooks but the figures of what we need to build by 2050 are quite stark in terms of our population growth and explosion so we do need to build they're like they're not there you know and Mm. that's the problem they're not there and we do need to build and, and and we need to appreciate that in order to address the housing crisis we need to we we need to build and we need to build um apartments and good quality apartments that are going to last us like our European neighbours built good quality apartments that lasted them um for you know for a hundred years so we do we do need to be able to do that but my big worry is that people are so frustrated at how the planning system is undermined and some of the illogical decisions that you can see the planning system make at the moment I think it's it's even harder to win that argument then. When you're like, I understand that this is a bananas decision, but we also need to be careful not to get into the space where we're just, you know, absolutely opposing everything. And I think when you see things like Cork copying and pasting decisions over for two separate SHDs, um, I think that's banana stuff. Just tell us about that for a second. That was a, a wild thing that happened. Yeah, um, it was two SHDs that have went into Cork and essentially. Uh, what are they now? Uh, sorry, strategic housing developments. Right. Um, and I'm not okay with the details of the specific planning applications in that. So strategic housing developments are, which was lobbied for by the Construction Industry Federation very hard that they said that we needed housing on stream and it was getting caught up in the planning system. And um, if you will bear with me, uh, we needed housing on stream and it was getting ca- caught up in the planning system. Um, and so it was allowed a tur- turnaround time um, it would go straight on board Panola and you wouldn't have to go to um, local authorities. But I've actually done a bit of work on having a look at the strategic housing system. So I'm just going to pull it up here. So of there were 228 applications lodged. Uh, 137 granted so, but only 42 of them were actually commenced so they had commencement orders so it means that only 30% of strategic housing developments had actually gone through so developers were sitting on them and in some cases flipping them um, but when it comes to student housing units uh, it was a much higher percentage of permissions commenced about 55 percent of commissions um commenced and like we had one recently in 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 my area with bailey gibson and the 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 eventual decision went entirely against what Ambora panola's own inspectors report said about the overdevelopment of the site and you know the there was a crazy 16-story unit there's more to come um 
like I'm in favour of density on sites like that, particularly, you know, inner city sites. It makes sense from kind of a transport perspective. Um, but 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 what's being proposed are in, in some cases are just absolutely bananas. And on board Panola went against their own inspector's report. And I'm hearing that more and more in permissions that have been granted, they're going against their inspector's report. And the one that we see in Cork was that they essentially copied and pasted in the same decision um, from two different applications, but they didn't change the details of it. So it was clear that they were just copying and pasting it over from another application. Which means that they accidentally granted planning permission for a cafe in one of the developments that they had never even been applied for. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is- what the was? But I, I, I doubt that they granted the plan permission. I'd say it was just referring to it, was it? Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, though. yeah, yeah I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. No, which is absolutely bananas. And I've heard so many cases of that. It was basically on of the eventual on board Panola's report granting plan permission is going against their own inspector's report. And that's what happened in the Bailey Gibson stuff as well. And that's really worrying because the inspectors are there as planning experts and they're looking at an overall sustainable development planning of the site. Nobody is saying that you shouldn't be developing, you know, um, derelict sites. Nobody is saying that, but it's done. It needs to be done in a way that's long-term sustainable and, you know, in keeping with sustainable planning principles. Fab, before you go, Rebecca, how are you finding life as a senator? Um, re- really enjoying it. It's obviously like strange, like it's strange because it's kind of COVID. Um, so you're not getting to kind of meet people in the same way. You're very much in your office. I've plantified my office, so it's like a little jungle. And um, I'm sharing with Annie Howey, so it's um very socially distanced, of course. Um, and yeah, no, it's it, it it's good. It's definitely um it's definitely a big change, and it's nice to have the kind of the one focus because I was on both the council and I was teaching, you know. So like not having two jobs and the, the just the headspace for not constantly switching between things, um, is great. So yeah, I, I'm I'm really really enjoying it at the moment. It's a big learning curve, a lot to learn. Um, I think the first time that I had to read a piece of legislation and a bill was a very difficult one because you know you're learning how to read being like and this refers to subsection 36 of subsection one you're like jesus christ what piece of legislation do i have to dig out here but i'm getting more used to that now at this stage brilliant nice one uh thanks so much for that really informative very useful keep up the good work that's rebecca moynihan labor party senator brilliant thanks a million see you bye bye